Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Now, I know some of you New City experts are like, Tyler, uh, we didn't do the scripture reading. Tyler, what happened to the scripture? What about the little call and response time? And the reason why we didn't do the scripture reading is, one, I incorporated it into the sermon, and two, because I needed you to hear the title of the sermon before we got into the scripture reading. The title of the sermon is The Hangriness of God. <laughs> the Hangriness of God. For those of you who are English learners, hangriness is a colloquial term that combines hungry and angry to make hangry. It's what happens when you are low blood sugar and all of a sudden your roommate cannot do anything right. You know, it is what happens when you are on a road trip and, and you're ready to throw someone out a window. Like that is hangry. And, and today we are going to explore the hangriness of God. Uh, if, if you are following along on the worship companion that you grabbed at the front cart, our scripture today is from Mark 11. And hear this word. The next day, after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Okay, we're going to pause right there. (laughs) The next day, after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. What does it mean that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God on earth? We believe that Jesus was there at the beginning of the universe, that Jesus knew each of us before we were born, that powerfully commanded all of us into like flourishing life together. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was hungry. Jesus wanted a Lunchable. What does that mean? What does it mean that the creator of the universe lacked something or desired something or wanted something? Uh, So this is a a whole uh, PhD theology uh, thesis right now. But like, I I think that it's what I want to, the theme that I want to pull on for this time is that the question of what is the savior of all creation hungry for? We have this reading that Jesus starts out hungry, and I think our next question must be, what is Jesus hungry for? Now, I know that there are folks who are at New City Church who don't necessarily identify as Christian or who are new to Christianity, and they're like, why do I care about what Jesus is hungry for? What does it matter to me? And what I want you to be leaning into is, like, we believe that as, as Christians that anything that Jesus did is instructive for how we are supposed to live in our bodies. Anything anything that Jesus said or taught is revealing a deep truth for how we are supposed to be living our lives. And so we pay close attention to the Gospels because we want to see how Jesus is doing things so that we might become a little bit more like Jesus, we might live a little bit more like Jesus throughout our lives. That's why this matters to us. So the, the Bible reading goes on and says, From far away, he noticed, that's Jesus, a fig tree in leaf. So he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will ever again eat of your fruit. His disciples heard this. The hangriness of God is real, y'all. Jesus cursed a tree. (laughs) That's what hangriness does to us, okay? 
Uh, yeah, and, and for those of you who are joining in on the, on the live stream, you type in that word or phrase that stuck out to you. So this, was, uh, so this was what Jesus did, what Jesus did when he was hungry. And then, so that's one section, and then um, the second section, it kind of like something else happens, and then it loops back to the fig tree. And section B says, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. (laughs) What? (laughs) I love this. I'm going to tell you what, 10 out of 10 guaranteed that you never went to a Sunday school class where they were like, let's learn about Jesus killing trees. (laughs) Let's learn about the deforestation of God. And yet, it's the, it's the scriptures that confuse us most that often have the deepest truth to convey to us. It's, it's when we are kind of like, wait, what's going on? That that scripture is calling us to a new life, to lean into that scripture. So if you ever open up the Bible, say to Mark 11, which is a great place to start reading the Bible, and you feel kind of confused, that confusion doesn't mean that you're being a bad Christian. That confusion means that God is inviting you to lean deeper into the text. That confusion is like something is going on here that's kind of fascinating to me, and I want to figure it out. And one of the ways to figure out um, what is going on in Scripture is to understand, like, uh, uh, Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, the the four parts of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And so uh, particularly looking at this month being Asian American Pacific Islander Month, yay, Asian American Pacific Islander Month, I wanted to look at Uh, Yet another story of an Asian American whose story, I believe, can illuminate for us uh, what exactly this Bible story was about. So, uh, so Larry Itliong, have any of you heard of Larry Itliong? I hadn't uh, heard of him until I started researching for this sermon. Um, So something you should know about Asian American uh, migration is that it often comes in waves and uh, often... um, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the first wave of immigration from any of the Asian countries was uh, usually young men, not families traveling together. And usually uh, they were recruited as kind of like cheap labor for uh, for the American economy. And so Larry Idliang was uh, among the first wave of Filipino migrants in the early 1900s. And he, his story echoes so many of the stories that Asian American migrants were told, which was, you know, like an Asian American or uh, an American labor recruiter comes to any of these countries and is like, your life is going to be amazing once you get to America. Let me show you what the pay is. Let me show you what the housing accommodations are going to be like. You're going to be able to live the life that you can't in your country right here. So you got to get to America where the, all your dreams are going to come true. And Larry Idliang um, later remarked uh, about that exchange. He said, you go to the United States where they pick money on trees. But did that happen? Hell no! <laughs> And that is the story of so many Asian Ameri- first-generation Asian Americans in this country, was that there was a certain promise that a certain tree would be there that would just provide abundance and nourishment and health, and then that promise was never fulfilled for those Asian migrants. That promise 
was left so much to be desired. Both Larry Idliang and Jesus know what it means to look at a tree and to know that your needs will not be met even though they were promised to be met. Sometimes that tree in the distance isn't as sweet as you thought. And some of you might know a little bit about, uh, about this yourself. There might have been some promises spoken into your life that might not have exactly come to fruition. Uh, some of you might have been like, yeah, if, if I go to college and accrue hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, then I'll be able to meaningfully get employed and pay off that debt. Huh, how's that tree going for you? <laughs> you know, like some of you have uh, had uh, understandings of what romantic relationships would f end up feeling like, and then you're in it, and you're like, huh, I'm looking for the fruit, and all I'm seeing are leaves. And, uh, and, and some, of you, um, uh, some of you have been promised what it means to be in America and, and what it means to live in this place, and the way that it's turning out does not exactly feel like what you are promised. It is not as sweet as you first understood. And so, and so do you see how by entering the stories of folks who are marginalized by society, we can start to empathize with the scripture by, by engaging the stories of folks who have been uh, pushed out by the empire, which is to say the forces of domination and oppression, by seeing by entering the story of, of the folks who have been pressed out, we can press in to the Bible and to start to understand what Jesus was about. And so we know what that feels like to have a tree that doesn't end up as sweet as you like. But something that, uh, you know, by, because this scripture is so fascinating to me, and especially as an environmentalist, I'm like, did Jesus just kill a tree? <laughs> like, what do we do with the fact that Jesus literally cursed a tree? Um, I really leaned into this. Um, spoiler alert, we're not going to preach about the environment uh, as much, but Jesus didn't just curse a tree. Jesus returned a tree back to soil. You know, like Jesus wasn't, you know what I mean? Like Jesus was like, this ain't it, but that doesn't mean that you can't become the circumstance of life again. Yeah. Oh, Oh, Jesus was like, okay, you are not living up to your purpose. You are, this is not exactly what is supposed to be happening, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a reset button so that, that you can become the conditions of life again. Oh, sometimes God sends us reset buttons that we so resent in the moment because we can't imagine the new life that's coming out after it. Sometimes it's like, oh, fig tree, you don't even know what's ahead for you. But uh, okay, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so thinking about this reset button, thinking about this scripture, I'm leaning into this text, I'm researching this text, and something that I learned, and this I feel like is key, is that the fig tree is a conventional symbol for Israel. I don't mean the current geopolitical, like, Israel-Palestine thing. I mean, like, an early people group of which Jesus identified who lived in the Middle East. Uh, the, the fig tree was a conventional image to represent uh, uh, his people, just like we have uh, a bald eagle, or just like, you know, we have, Americans have like certain images that represent us. There are certain images that represent the nation of Israel. And we see this in the Old Testament um, in Hosea 9:10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. In its first season, like the first fruits on the fig tree, right? And so we have scriptural evidence. In Joel 1, 6 through 7, uh, talks about a nation powerful and beyond number has invaded my land, that is Israel. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. Its fangs are like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my vines, splintered my 
Fig trees stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches have turned white. So this is like a, a metaphor that prophets have used for hundreds of years of comparing this people group collectively to a fig tree. And then I think most strikingly in Jeremiah, we see, I will put an end to them, declares the Lord. There are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree, uh-huh. only withered leaves. They have squandered what I have given them. Oh! Y'all, this is why we got to read the Bible, by the way, because, and read the whole Bible, not just like the convenient parts that you already agree with. Like, do you, like, Hosea, Joel, and Jeremiah are all in like super different parts of the Old Testament, but they're all comparing, they're all raising up this literary device of comparing the nation of Israel to a fig tree and how God relates to that fig tree in certain kind of ways. And so, like, we have to understand the whole body of Scripture when understanding understanding Jesus, that this is why uh, yeah, Christians share a sacred text with the Jewish community, because we believe that uh, you can't really understand Jesus, who was Jewish, unless we also drop on the, the sacred texts of the Jewish folks. And so, um, so this is relevant for our understanding of what this fig tree is all about. Maybe this isn't just about low blood sugar. Maybe this is about a certain type of national dissatisfaction. Maybe this is a certain type of like looking at society and seeing whom we have become and said, this is not who God has created us to be. And, and context matters, right? And so like in Mark 11, uh, sometimes if you are confused about how to read the Bible, one of the things that you can do is look at some text that is before it and some text that is after it. Because the Bible isn't just like a series of fortune cookies. The Bible, you know, like there's like narratives to this. And so if something happened before and after, that's kind of relevant. And so in Mark 11, we have, in the beginning of Mark 11, Jesus protests and has a protest entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus holds a demonstration. This is what we call Palm Sunday, where he's like riding on a donkey, entering in through the oppositional gate from the gate that the king enters. Jesus is entering in the other gate. Everyone is waving palms, and it's like this huge nonviolent demonstration that the emperor is not the king, that, that the person who is in charge is not actually the person who created the universe. And so Jesus starts starts out coming in hot in Mark 11, right? And then right after that, we have the, the two fig tree things. And what happens in the rest of Mark 11? Jesus flips tables, goes to the temple, and flips tables. People are literally like in the most sacred space in the city center, which is also the economic hub, which is also the cultural religious hub, like all, the capital of everything. Jesus comes on in, sees that this place is not being used to honor God, that the corruption and greed of this place is, is polluting our prayers, and it just flips over tables, just goes through and flips over tables. Um, and then, and then the, the chapter ends with Jesus verbally body-slamming the Pharisees. <laughs> like, he, they get in a debate, and the Pharisees do not win. So, uh, like, th we see in Mark 11 this kind of, like, heat that Jesus is coming in with. The, this, this certain type of, like, this anger that isn't just um, pettiness, it's, just, it's not being toxic, it's not being a troll, but it's rather a certain kind of anger that is grounded in hope. 
This I got from Cole Arthur Riley. Anger can be hopeful because anger says, I believe that this is not who you were made to be. I believe that this isn't right. And I'm using my anger because I believe a better thing is possible. And so sometimes we need to channel some of our hopeful anger into our situations, into our relationships, into our society to say, hey, I was promised a tree that is not bearing fruit and I am leveraging my anger because I believe a better world is possible. I'm showing hope through anger. I'm showing a future through anger. Jesus shows us that it's okay to be angry. And in fact, it's one of the only ways to show hope when situations are dire, when things are desperate. And so, maybe the savior of all creation is hungry for communities of faith to become the right kind of angry. Maybe God is hungry for us to start bearing some fruit of not just being angry for the sake of being angry, but leveraging that energy for the sake of transforming the world. Maybe God is looking at all the, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, we, we got a lot of churches out here, and I kind of wonder if God is rustling through all these leaves and is like, but where's the fruit, y'all? When are we going to get fruity in here? <laughs> because, like, like, Jesus is hungry for us to change the world. Jesus is looking out here and says, like, hey, what are we going to do about the homelessness encampments in Minneapolis? What are we going to do about the racism that is happening in our school systems? What are we going to do about the workplace abuse that happens against women every day? Jesus is like, I want this community of faith to start bearing fruit for a better world because God is hungry for that. This is the kind of future that God longs for. And I believe that it was that God that worked through Larry Itliung after he arrived in the United States because Larry Itliung founded the Filipino Farm Labor Union in 1956. Filipinos are one of the um, most significant labor forces for farm work in California and not very many people are telling their story, but he organized in the 50s and he, uh, in the 60s, he partnered with Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez to successfully lead the Delano grape strikes. Okay, so track with me here. I believe that the Holy Spirit was working through Larry Itliung to organize a people together, a people who were promised something that they never received together, to move in such a way that it bent the imagination of Californian labor society. It bent the imagination of what it means to be fair and just in our society. Because people looked at those farm workers and thought that they were disposable. And the, uh, Larry Itliung said, we are not disposable, we are indispensable, we are divine, we are holy, and we are a people who are striving for a new world. And so I love that along with um, the United Farm Workers Movement of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, they said, we are going to make you hungry until you realize the hunger of God. We are not going to pick your grapes anymore to, because we want society to feel the hunger that we know that God feels for the world. We are going to restrain, we're going to hold back the very things that you need to live 
so that you see how we need to change our society to be more just in the world. This, I believe, is very good news, y'all. And it was successful. The Delano grape uh, strikes was one of the pinnacle organized farm labor movements of the 1900s. It broadened the imagination of how desperately poor folks can organize together to, to liberate themselves, to be part of a movement by themselves. And, uh, and all of that is possible, I believe, because Jesus is hungry. All of that is possible, I believe, because the creator of the universe is looking at each of us, longing for us to create an, a new world of thriving life, longing for each of us to have a springtime in our own lives of abundance and sharing, of community, of beloved movement building, to be in solidarity with each other. Listen, I know that there's a lot of different kind of folks who come to New City Church and a lot of different stories who are at New City Church, but somehow we as a movement need to see each other in solidarity with each other. And that means if anyone at New City Church is being stepped on by the empire, that all of us are being stepped on by the empire. If any one of us is in a cage, then all of us are in a cage. And we are serving a God who is seeking to make us freer and freer. And so we must collectively move together to bring about the fruitfulness of the world, to bring about hope in a hopeless world, to bring about joy in a world that has robbed us of our smiles, to bring about love in a world that only wants us to be isolated. Jesus is hungry for a new future together and is giving us the Holy Spirit, all the power that we need to make it possible. Let us partner with God this day and every day. Amen.